Hello everyone, my name is Mukul and this is the Deep Neural Notebooks podcast. This is a podcast where I like to discuss topics ranging from deep learning, natural language processing and computer vision to neuroscience and open source software through conversations with experts about their thoughts on the state of their specializations, their journey so far and the road ahead. This is the 10th episode of the podcast and a really special one. I've got the authors of the Practical Natural Language Processing book by O'Reilly. For those of you who don't know, this book is essentially a comprehensive guide to building, iterating and scaling real-world NLP systems. From software engineers to data scientists to machine learning engineers to product managers and business leaders, this book is for anyone who is in any way involved in building NLP systems in industry. The book is already topping the charts on Amazon and has been endorsed by various experts from industry and academia. So for this episode, I talked to the authors Soumya, Bodhi, Anuj and Harshit. Soumya is a researcher at the National Research Council in Canada, which is the country's largest federal research and development organization. In the past, she has been involved in academia as a faculty at the Iowa State University and in the industry at Microsoft and various other companies. Bodhi is a computer science PhD student working on NLP and machine learning at UC San Diego. His research interests include language generation and dialogue and interactive systems. Anuj is currently the head of machine learning and data science at Wahan. He has built NLP and ML systems for Fortune 100 companies and several startups as a senior leader. Harshit is a co-founder at DeepFlux. He has been involved in building and scaling machine learning systems and engineering pipelines for several Silicon Valley startups as a founder and an advisor. So in this episode, I've asked them everything about the book. We talk about the key ideas behind the book, about how it bridges the gap between theory and building practical machine learning and NLP systems. We talk about the inspiration behind the book, about how it stands out, about the people who could benefit from the book, about how it has been structured and lots more. We also talk about the elephant in the room, which is GPT-3 and try to make sense of the hype around it and to understand the broader impact and how it positions us as a society to leverage these systems on a wider scale. We also talk about the state of machine learning and NLP systems in general, about the various misconceptions and misinformed expectations that surround these fields in the context of the business of AI, and about how they've tried to incorporate this message in the book. Thanks to O'Reilly and the authors, we're giving away five copies of the Practical NLP book. In the description of this video or audio, you will find a link to the tweet accompanying the giveaway. To participate, all you have to do is retweet it and comment about your favorite part from the conversation with the practical NLP hashtag. And so if you'd like to be updated about the results, you can subscribe to the channel or follow me on Twitter at M-K-U-L-K-H-A-N-N-E. You can also get a free trial to the book on O'Reilly's website using the promo code TNLP20. I'm really thankful to have been able to host all my amazing guests who have come to the podcast and shared their journeys and stories through these conversations. If you like these conversations or get some value out of these conversations, please give a thumbs up or a five star rating depending on the streaming platform. It really helps the channel and allows the content to reach out to more people. Thank you. Hello everyone. Good morning for those of you who are in India. And uh, thank you so much for doing this. Congratulations to you for your practical natural language processing book with O'Reilly. And I'm really interested, uh, really excited for today's interview. I have, I have a bunch of questions for you all about the book, about the inspiration, about 
how your experiences have influenced the book about the state of AI and machine learning in general. And I'm really excited to have all of your diverse uh, perspectives about AI and machine learning, basically, and natural language processing in general. So thank you for doing this. And uh, yeah, so uh, we'll start with the introduction first, like for the few people who probably don't know who all of you are, uh, could each of you like give a brief introduction about what you do? Um, and yeah, I think we could start with that. Yeah. Um, so my, I'm Soumya. I work as a researcher at the National Research Council in Canada. I was also an alumni of Tripurati Hyderabad. I did my master's there and I, um, I did my PhD in the University of Turin in Germany and then spent some time in Iowa State University as a tenure track assistant professor. And then uh, after two and a half years there, I moved to Canada. Uh, I, I worked as a data scientist in the industry for about a year before moving into a government research organization. So um, I primarily work on multilingual NLP, so uh, developing NLP solutions for many languages. And I'm, uh, I'm kind of my research interests are more in the area of educational applications of natural language processing. So yeah, that's that's my background. Uh, hi, myself Bodhi. Uh, I'm a rising third year PhD student at UC San Diego. Uh, I'm doing my PhD in computer science with Professor Julian McCauley. Uh, currently, I am interning at Microsoft Research and previously I worked at uh, Google AI where I built systems uh, that included NLP and text processing and we have deployed it for millions of users. Uh, my general research interest is language generation and dialogue and interactive systems where I love to research with uh, intera uh, interaction between human and computers and find out various ways of uh, moderating them. Yeah. Hey, my name is Anuj. I am currently heading machine learning team at Wuhan. Prior to this, I have incubated and led a bunch of machine learning teams at early stage startups as well as big organizations. Prior to that, I was in academia at IIT Delhi, IIIT Hyderabad. Uh, my work has been at various facets of machine learning, but large parts of it is is around NLP. That's about me. Hey guys, uh, I'm Harshit. Uh, I'm currently a co-founder and CTO at uh, Tflux. Uh, I also started my NLP journey at IIIT Hyderabad and then uh, uh, did uh, applied research uh, and build systems at uh, CMU and MIT Media Lab. Uh, and I've also built uh, startups and engineering pipelines uh, in different valley companies. Uh, my general focus has been uh, making sure that whatever NLP and machine learning you do, that uh, is out to the public and that could be used. So, you know, uh, getting products from prototypes and POCs to out in real users is what I have spent the last two years doing. So yeah, so uh, all of you come from like quite different backgrounds. Like uh, you've shared a few universities probably, but like Bodhi is a PhD student, Harshit and Anuj are working in the industry. Soumya is more from an academic background. So how did you guys meet and how was the idea for the book originally? How did the book start off? Like how did you guys meet and yeah, how did you go about it? So uh, Anuj has been doing these workshops at NLP, I think, since 2015. And, uh, you know, I was helping Anuj out uh, in, uh, you know, in the 
summer of 2017 and you know that is when we and bodhi were also collaborating and that is when you know some publisher approached us and we started thinking about uh, writing a book on nlp and uh, yeah and uh, somya joined us uh, you know in uh, 2018 and uh, yeah yeah i think as as harshit said i mean this idea primarily came from our experiences where we saw that uh, there is a need of a, a content that can give a more pragmatic aspect or pragmatic view of the of nlp and that's when these discussions started and then yeah i mean as harsh said i i and harsh thought of this idea and then bodhi joined and then samya joined and yeah after 3 years it's actually a reality right so it's been a long journey and before we talk more about the book about the ideas that it presents um could either of you give a brief introduction for the people who are who just found out about the book about about what ideas it is presenting and could like someone give a brief introduction of the book for people who were not aware of it so the book is essentially around building iterating and scaling nlp systems uh and then uh, also addressing in a big way how 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 to tailor these solutions for various industry verticals and towards the end of the book we also cover uh, a playbook in order to successfully in order to deliver successful nlp projects so i think those are some of the pillars around which which the entire book is based around right so more practical approach of it taking theory to sort of product in some way yes. or like yeah and uh, so what would you say is the unique selling point of the book what has been the target throughout the book um could we talk about that plus like what sort of gap did you notice in the field and uh how did you want to address that gap and probably provide some mm-hmm. information about how that gap could be bridged and yes yeah, so what has been the target of the book a unique selling point of the book so i would say the target has been for uh, a lot of people in industry how can you uh, take what is being done in academia and take it forward and actually successfully build products uh, we all understand that and 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 we all know that the field is evolving extremely fast every single day you keep on hearing a lot of new models and uh, breakthroughs but does all of that directly translate into uh, progress in industry uh, so how do you balance that thing out secondly uh, while a lot of the cutting edge is a great work and that is a must needed but from an industry perspective uh, uh, the battle is more around data rather than model and how do you address that how do you in a nutshell how do you build nlp uh, solution successfully in industry right from zero to one of of the entire process and to and to add to what uh, anuj just said uh, so what we noticed is that every industry vertical whether it be healthcare or uh, finance or e-commerce nlp or generally machine learning is supplied in a different way they deal with different problems and we found that this was just not covered anywhere uh, formally uh so we and that is something that we saw a lot of our colleagues struggling with and that is why uh, besides uh, what anu said building uh, lp from 0 to 
There's also a bunch of focus on building NLP for uh, specific domains and whatever. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, um, add or reiterate what uh, Anuj and Harshit said. Uh, like in general, when uh, there are many ways of solving a problem, right? And then you also directly you, you don't build one model and stop there. Right? Maybe you start with a simpler one, and then gradually, as you collect more data or as you experiment more, you go from one model to the other, right? So that's that's something that's not exactly discussed explicitly anywhere, uh, and we. That's one of the main uh, things in our book, according to me. Like we, we, we focus on that that aspect as much as possible in all chapters. Yeah, I want to add something uh, that is regarding uh, the expectation uh, of a project when you start, uh, uh, and especially that has been a generally problem in the industry that uh, there are there are always these uh, these hyped models that people use or. Are, are better marketed. Um, so whenever any, let's say a startup start a new project or even in a big industry, a team is starting a new project, they generally tend to uh, follow those similar recipes for all the projects. But that's not always true and that's not always give you the satisfactory outcome. And uh, it's mainly because there is an expectation mismatch of what you want to achieve from the project you have defined uh, compared to what's out there or what's being portrayed. Uh, most of the time, uh, in many of the cases, uh, there are examples that are cherry picked that you see in these uh, big models, or there are demos which only targets to the best solutions. But whenever you try to apply those solutions in your project, you may not get that uh, output. So it's very important to set the right expectation and then build incrementally uh, uh, towards what you want to achieve. And that's exactly the recipe we wanted to uh, you know, uh, covered throughout the book in various NLP tasks we cover, in various use cases we, uh, we, we present, and in various domains we talk about. So I think that's, that's we, have been, we have been facing in our experiences, and we definitely wanted to combine that wisdom into the book. I think if we have to say it in a line, I think it's, it's a view and advice from trenches, uh, having been there and done that and uh, what really works, what does not work, how do you make those choices? Uh, and like I said previously, data often beat, beats models when it comes to industry. So having investing more in data helps you much more than investing in models. I mean, by improving a model, you might gain two or 3%, but often in industry, by investing in data, you can easily gain 10, 10 to 20%. For some reason, uh, I mean, improvements as model is considered better than improvement in data. But if you think from an industry perspective, it doesn't matter. What matters is the improvement and how quickly you can get that done. Right. So one thing I noticed with the book was that most other books from O'Reilly or like any other publishers, they usually cover the more theoretical aspects or the practical, uh, the more engineering aspects of things. And whereas this, with this book, you've tried to talk about how you could create viable systems and about what different kinds of people who are involved in a product, how, how they could, what are the best practices for them, how they could be more realistic about their expectations and things like that. So uh, how do you think this book, book compares with the other books that are out there? And is that something that you've 
thought about or discussed before like how you wanted this book to stand out a little different from the other ones and uh was that a conscious choice or like was it something that just came about over time yeah i think uh, we have already thought about it uh, when we are structuring the the proposal of the book that how how our book should stand out uh, among all the other books that are out there in the market and there has been a influx of uh, uh, new books especially uh, especially on nlp that are coming from various top publishers including o'reilly so we definitely wanted to uh, set out our goal uh, differently than all the other books so that uh, so that this book stands out as well as they can work as a uh, um, as as a complement uh, uh, with the other books so people can read multiple books and they can get different senses so uh, to break it down in a more uh, structured manner i think mm, you can categorize uh, different books that are available in the market into 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 three uh, three buckets one is the textbooks uh, that has been t- uh, taught you know for years in in courses uh, and that are out there written by uh, uh, big professors uh, so that's one category uh, another new category uh, that's been very popular recently is uh, applying deep learning in nlp and there has been a whole range of techniques that these books uh, um, discuss uh, that how to apply very specific deep learning algorithm in in various nlp solutions and that's heavily focused on this deep learning algorithm and then there is another set of books uh, what we mostly call as a handbook that uh, that's another category that's a final category where uh, the book this it picks up a particular framework for example pytorch or tensorflow or nltk uh, and it explains all the various nlp tasks uh, in the light of that framework so so these are the three broad category uh, that we have seen uh, the current book that belong to and uh, but but so we wanted to be uh, different from what this book offers uh, and we wanted to again bridge the gap uh, bridge the missing information that these books are, are not fully covering or or one of the bucket is not covering in all the aspects uh, so that is that is that is the first uh, breakdown we made when we were thinking about how do we uh, come up with uh, unique selling points for our book now uh, let's come to the other way other way around it's the in what in what direction so what are these unique points should be that these these different categories of book fail to cover and we found uh, certain dimensions that are quite important uh, in the industry uh, which probably are not so important or not so uh, uh, you know well thought uh, in, in a typical academic or research scenario for example the uh, the usage or application of rule based and machine learning algorithms because uh, we felt uh, from our experiences that you still need these rule based models or or machine learning normal machine learning models which are not very advanced deep learning models and uh, many of these bo- books from other categories do not always discuss that when do you use this rule based model or do you at all use this rule based models or not so that is one dimension and we wanted to cover that secondly what we found is very important and that's not mostly covered in many of the articles around or books around is how do you handle data scarcity or different volumes of data so as i said in a different uh, stages of your project you can have different volume of data it could be small it could be large etc so what's the recipe should be uh, with your varying amount of uh, data you have and how your algorithm how your approach towards the problem would change so we definitely wanted to tackle that question and most of the time one or more other categories of the books they do not cover this issue uh another thing we wanted to focus and that's also 
kind of linked to what uh, previously we discussed that the pipeline approach uh, that looking at the software engineering approach and looking at the uh, ML ops that usually people follow in normal data science machine learning projects. How do you add up those best practices in, in an NLP project? And that's why we call our book as an AI project playbook because we step by step tell you that how do you start a project from a business idea, data collection, building or model, iteration, deployment, etc. cetera. Uh, and then I think the final uh, bullet point would be the industry and business focus. So we explicitly have dedicated chapters for different domains uh, where uh, people are not always sure that how they convert a, a problem from that particular domain to an NLP problem. And then they can solve that NLP problem using the typical methods. For example, we cover uh, various NLP tasks in, in you know, e-commerce, retail, uh, social media, healthcare, law, finance. And uh, most, and I, I don't think any of the books from the other categories I described they do uh, explain these as a, as in, in in the details that we kind we are trying to present. So in that way, I think these are the main dimensions uh, uh, we wanted to focus. So these are the unique selling points as well as kind of the differentiating factor from the other books that are currently in the market. Another way, Mukul, to think about the book would be it's like a handbook for all problems that you might face in industry, and. It may not have the final solution to what you're looking for, but it will be a starting point to uh, most problems that you will face while building real NLP solutions. And uh, that is why we have given almost 450 references that can lead you to other venues where you will find a solution which might not be completely covered in the book. Right? So I thought that that was being missed, so I just also added that. Right. So what I feel that the convention so far has been that you only learn about the industry side of things, the business side of things, only once you get a job or you start as a developer or when you're working towards the product. But it's, it's good to know that there is like a handbook that could sort of help so people who are just starting out issue, to sort of align their... Yeah. Right. So another issue, Mukul, with what you're saying is that Unless you are at a few companies like uh, Google AI or Microsoft Research or a few selected companies, most uh, uh, most folks also in industry may not be aware of all the best practices because this is such a fast-moving field. And often a lot of uh, people who are doing machine learning or data science are folks who might have come from engineering backgrounds without a strong theoretical uh, understanding. And on the other hand, there are people who have deeper theoretical understanding, but they have never worked in industry. Right. So, so that subset is very, or the, that intersection uh, is pretty small, and that is only visible or only uh, only uh, available. Uh, uh, that kind of training is only available at certain companies and certain groups. But uh, so you know, so as you said that you know, you only learn once you add in, uh, when you once you join industry. That may not always be true, depending on uh, where uh, you know what teams uh, people are working with. And that is something uh, we also noticed in the workshop that uh, Anuj has been conducting. Uh, that uh, pretty senior people with the pretty respectable companies uh, may not be aware of all these nuances. Yeah. It's such a, such a fast moving. Yeah, I think uh, I just wanted to reiterate the point I said before about the expectation because this kind of vicious loop. So even when you join the industry, uh, the senior leaders, they may not be aware of these best practices. So you still uh, come to the to the wrong pipeline that you have been using and so you might be learning wrong things so uh, right. or maybe not i wouldn't say the wrong things are probably not the most effective uh, way of approaching the 
the business sub-optimal. problem. So, sub-optimal. Yeah, suboptimal uh, approaches. So, so that's why that's why we feel that this book is not only useful for you know beginners uh, who wants to learn NLP, but also it would be extremely useful for product managers and CXOs, even business leaders who wants to kind of restructure their project or the way they think whenever they're starting a new venture or a new product or maybe even in their current products. And I think just to add to to it, Mukul, uh, so as Harshit right, rightly said, I mean, apart from a couple of organizations which have been doing AIML for a very long period, most of the organizations are getting into for the first time. And in our personal experience, what we have seen is that at most organizations, the first set of teams, AI teams, end up getting churned, either by choice or for for whatever reason. And so, so, so there are a lot of lessons which are hard learned. And before burning hand, I mean, it it is good that uh, there is there are certain resources that can address this. And that's where the book is positioned in such a way. I mean, there is a lot of content out there which addresses of how to build models and stuff. But but what we felt is what is really needed in order to make it work in industry is a pers- perspective from an insider's perspective. I think in one of the previous discussions, you also mentioned that one of the things that you wanted to bring forward with the book was the idea that AI is not the silver bullet for everything. And that probably you should be more intelligent about uh, how you approach a problem and you should not just start with uh, AI. And what what we're noticing is that companies are moving towards that and trying to sell the idea that they're using deep learning in some way and trying to attract customers using that. So could you talk about how you've tried to sort of address this hype in the book and about how probably people are are not very well positioned to take advantage of this. Like, yeah, could you explain about that? So I think, uh, Mukul, uh, there is a, I mean, deep learning has made great advances in recent years. And we see a lot of articles that are coming every day in popular uh, uh, channels, right? Now, this has created a perception literally like if there is any problem that is hard to solve, you should apply deep learning or AI. Uh, truth is far from it, right? At the end of the day, the objective is to solve the problem. Deep learning is just a tool to do it. And it's a tool that is that can solve only certain kind of problems. And in our personal experience, we have seen many cases where either problems are highly ill-formed. I mean, you don't even need machine learning, I mean, at all. Or even if you need machine learning or simple rule-based solutions, or simple models can solve solve the problem rather than bringing in big guns to solve it upfront. Okay. So, uh, so the book gives a realistic picture. You can literally think of the book as there's a machine learning team in, in a particular organization X, which is trying to solve an NLP problem, how they should go about, what are the various constraints, what are the various choices they will face, at what stage, which choice is better? At what stage, what constraint can be ignored and what constraint becomes dominating? So that at the end of it, you can deliver models that are in production, serving your customers and bringing the value proposition. 
so that's the key thing according to me yeah i think uh, i think there are two major uh, point uh, i would like to uh, mention here which we again pointed out before one is the data and one is finally when you are serving to the user and deep learning models uh, kind of have the uh, weaknesses in in both of these area uh, which we often tend to uh, miss and that's again coming back to the point of wrong expectation because we often forget that end of the day we have to build a product deliver it to the user so um, uh, so before i come to the deployment part i'll come to the data part uh, that's also a, uh, that's also a curious case of uh, uh, you know wrong expectation oftentimes we think that okay we can we can try with whatever data we have or we can try with any public data sets uh, but most of the time that will not work for your case because either your problem is very specific to your domain so that your all of the public data sets will not be applicable or you can't just use it or on the other hand even if you want to use your own data set you may not have sufficient data to train or fine tune a, a deep learning model uh, to get the desired performance because all of these models are extremely data hungry that's the usp of this deep learning model that as you feed more data as you feed more information this model can learn internal representations that are not obvious from the data you usually have or, or or these models have so much capacity it can learn many internal representations that are much more nuanced and it can then hallucinate in a in a in a proper manner later where it can work for a test example that you haven't provided during the training time but that only will work if you have a lots of data but most of the cases you may not have that or if your data data distribution or data looks very different than what your deep learning model has been trained on then there is already a mismatch so that is one problem at the start of the project and let's say even if you have a deep learning model maybe your domain is perfectly aligned with whatever the model that is out there but even in that case let's say you have a model that has 100 billion parameters how would you deploy that model to a to to a cloud Uh, which will uh, act in a mobile app where user would be using in a latency of microseconds right so that's 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 very difficult and so in that case you need lots of lots of gpu so you are essentially increasing your uh, not only your not only your parameter cost but but also your your operational cost and most of the time small team startups cannot afford to uh, afford to do that but they want to do something cool so they start with a deep learning model so either you fail at the at the beginning when you don't have the data you go in a wrong path or even if you go in the right path while serving that in a, to the user you might again fail so it's very very important to actually scope out uh, set the right expectations scope out what you really want to do understand what amount of data you have understand what are the models that are out there and how they kind of align and then finally also analyze that how that would pan out when you finally deploy so that's a whole range of uh, different stages in a in a project that's already there and that's exactly we wanted to discuss in a incremental fashion in a pipeline fashion that what should be your strategy what what's the recipe at the every stage as you go as you grow and then again we say that when you have all of these ingredients that are ripe to use a deep learning model use a deep learning model simple right and to add to what anuj and bodhi said uh, so first of all yes uh, people often forget about how you will be serving the model what will be the model properties that essentially influence what you build this is something that we have covered another thing that we have briefly touched upon is that why it's important to not uh, follow the cutting edge uh, science and think that uh, you know this is what you can apply to your uh, and uh, you know so professor zack lepton and uh, professor jacob steinhardt so they have done a very good uh, uh, work on why this can essentially derail your project 
instead of you know uh, uh, instead of uh, bootstrapping it and making it better so i just wanted to add to what uh, everybody has said uh, uh, just to give some more concrete examples from the book let's say at several points we have these examples where we build from very simple solutions to complex deep learning models and there were cases where the deep learning models were just not the best models uh but when you start there like when you start directly with deep learning we'll never know that there is a simpler solution which is probably easier to deploy right like uh and and also there were there was i think one or two examples where there is like a 1% or 2% improvement to the very complex model but then how much of it is actually useful for you uh both in terms of like end user uh the satisfaction and in terms of like is it worth the cost involved like is this 1% 2% really uh what the i don't know astronomical costs that were involved so we i think we have uh, uh these discussions throughout the book taking these examples concretely along with talking about them in a more general sense uh, uh say in the last chapter or at the beginning of the book right so like i mentioned before i see that uh you guys have a lot of diverse background and that is one reason why you have been able to touch upon various different perspectives of looking at machine learning and nlp in that sense so uh, could you talk about how your individual journeys and careers and insights how from what you've done over the past few years how that has shaped the book how it has inspired the book in that sense like yeah like uh, anuj and harshit mentioned earlier i uh, became a part of the book much later uh, compared to the other three and uh, uh, considering that i don't have a lot of industry experience i didn't really see myself writing this kind of a book uh, so uh, when anuj originally asked me to take a look at a chapter that they wrote i was just doing that i mean i was just uh, being the reviewer that i usually i mean I, we usually review for conferences and to different kinds of reviews uh but then when he asked me if i can join i i didn't know what to say like i wasn't sure if i can manage this but then i like writing in general i like communicating with people on different things so it was hard to resist that opportunity to you know write communicate um so while writing the book i think i learned a lot because like i said i don't have like i don't have a lot of experience uh in different kinds of industries deploying nlp products like uh my post phd industry experience is just a year i worked in industry before but it was in a much junior role so i was primarily doing what i was told not you know building teams like i was doing uh, uh last year so in that sense i learned a lot while while i was writing this book uh so there were some parts where i knew what i was doing like say model building and these kind of things or writing about how to uh, uh so preparing notebooks or these kind of things i was doing all the time because i was a faculty member so that was my daily job uh, writing in a way that people hopefully will understand you know so that was not my problem my problem came where i had to write <laughs> i had to write more about uh, uh practical things like so i i could write easily some parts where i actually had experience on but then there were also these things like say for example um writing uh, about end to end nlp pro- process or writing about how do you acquire data like data augmentation things like that i, I just had no experience about it so uh, it was good to it, it's good that we have four of us and coming from 
all sorts of different backgrounds. So uh, I think that was really useful both in terms of writing the book as well as for me as an individual. Uh, I learned a lot about different aspects of NLP and uh, non-academic aspects of NLP to be more uh, particular. And I also realized that while when I was teaching courses in NLP, I was always using the traditional NLP textbooks that everyone uses. But then uh, I don't I, I don't think I had any student who eventually went into doing a PhD. Uh, everyone eventually went to take up uh, some industry job. So I knew very well that these textbooks are not really preparing them for those positions, like entry-level industry positions, but we had no alternative. Like at that time, I couldn't think of any other book to suggest to them because we need to have some theory. It, I, I just can't use a handbook as a textbook. We need to have some theory, but we need to have a lot of uh, practical work as well. So. While writing this book and once this book came out, I was confidently talking about this book to my faculty colleagues, uh, saying, hey, this is something you can look at if you want to teach a more applied course. So, yeah, I, um, yeah, I think I think that answers your question from my side. Yes, that's definitely. Yeah, Bodhi? Yeah, I think uh, for me, uh, I gave a very interesting uh, point of my career uh, to this project because I was uh, I just I just finished my master's degree. I joined in the industry. I was heavily working on hands-on on NLP projects, but then I'm also I was also preparing for my PhD, uh, and uh, <laughs> I was about to join. So uh, so that was a very so it was this project was a first of all a, a learning experience for me that when I kind of looked at different core tasks and I tried to write them, I found that there are many details I, I cannot remember right now. So I had to go back and find out uh, what's, how, how should I write it? And then again comes to the point of communication and Samia mentioned that how do you really communicate that in a, in a non-theoretical way because you cannot go extremely theoretical when you're explaining in an applied book. So uh, right. at least something was a, 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 a learning experience and enlightening for me. Uh, I think, but I really enjoyed the part, especially the domain, uh, uh, different domain chapters we wrote. Uh, I still remember because I was working in an e-commerce company before. So um, so writing uh, or contributing to that chapter was uh, was really interesting to me that I could I could come up with new use cases. And when I talked to other folks, even sometimes even my co-authors didn't know about that, oh, this is a problem that actually exists in that particular domain where you could apply NLP. So that was really fun. And that also applies for the other chapters when I learned from others that, okay, oh, you could actually do that. Uh, using NLP, and when you put down everything together, uh, then I then I thought that oh, this is a nice book where I could actually go back when I'm uh, interviewing for some of my research <laughs> internships or uh, even you know talking to other folks. But uh, so it's it's been a it's kind of a fifty fifty. So uh, fifty percent is contributing to the community, uh, trying to understand what people are doing actually in the industry. What uh, what are the problems right now out there in the industry uh, as mis as a mismatch in expectation etc i talked about and try to address that that problem and the rest of the 50 percent is, is was a pure learning experience for me yeah so my journey into nlp started much differently mukul uh, so i i was part of an organization early in my career which was dealing with a lot of social media text and that's when for for the first time when i encountered nlp and what I realized quickly was that while, uh, I mean, that's when uh, deep learning had already started to, to make a lot of inroads and come up with these beautiful findings. But what I realized is that two things. One, uh, 
these models don't truly understand right so uh, so the i mean questions like reasoning and why why the model is doing what it is doing and stuff like that uh, were hard to answer and secondly building a model is only 10% of a journey in industry there is whole lot of 90% that nobody i mean i could hardly find anything online or enough resources up there that could really help me up there and i i actually learned a lot of this stuff hard way and i and arshit have had a chance to advise a, a bunch of startups in our journey and we saw that similar kind of scenarios and problem were existing there and that's where the idea of doing a workshop came to that okay let's share our learnings and uh, this is what harshit was referring earlier this is what we were doing in 2016 onwards and while doing we realized that this is a much larger problem i mean our workshop were were attended by a lot of teams which were in various organizations uh, and we realized that all of them have this common threads that are completely missing and that's when the idea came that okay uh, it 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 may be worth writing a book so that it is uh, reachable to a much larger audience base and that's how the project essentially started uh and uh, again like as uh, as bodhi also mentioned we all come from very different backgrounds so so there are a lot of parts that even we were not aware of and we have learned a lot from each other in that sense hopefully collectively we have done exhaustive work uh even if uh, we were mutually exclusive in that sense uh to compile a whole whole kind of a playbook that one can literally use on a daily basis while working on projects in industry so yes so my journey for on nlp started uh, in 2007 when i was doing academic research in nlp and i think till 2011 i was involved in cutting edge of nlp and machine learning uh, uh, publishing papers and so on but after that so i was largely involved in building startups or advising startups where i had a very different experience on what uh, goes in the trenches and how do you build uh, things from scratch so one thing that i really learned uh, is the cutting edge which i was not as aware was aware of as say bodhius and others in the team were because uh, i was much more in the trenches i had a much more in the trenches view uh what uh, what helped from especially from my side was that i'd been advising a range of teams for a long time uh, and especially startups and i realized the problems that startups or smaller teams or teams which are not as equipped don't have uh, uh, cutting edge phd uh, or phd researchers working on their problem and looking at uh, looking at uh, nlp and ai projects from that lens uh, was uh, quite useful for some of the things that are there Uh, i'll also add the add to this that you know i think this is something that uh, somya was too humble to not add but uh, somya has been a professor and faculty uh, at uh, at a range of universities and i think that her background in education and teaching were quite useful in you know bringing certain aspects uh, uh, pedagogical aspects to the book yeah so like harshit mentioned uh, somya you probably have the most academic background most experience with academia and so how do you think that specifically helped you shape the book and uh, provide sort of an academic background 
to the industrial experience that Harshit and Anuj bring to the picture. So how do you think that contributed to the book specifically? I think, in, so this is of course what I think others may or may not agree with it. So I think the main um, um, main way my academic background was useful for me, according to me, was in the way I was writing uh, what I wanted to write basically. Like often um, when you're like a good engineer, you'll not be a good writer, right? Like you have something in your head, but it's not always... Uh, seen in a way that other people can understand. Like, I mean, I come from an engineering background and a lot of my friends are engineers, so, and my husband is an engineer, so I know, like, we are not exactly the best communicators around there. Uh, but then being in, uh, being, actually being, not, not just being in academia, but actually being in teaching helped me with that part. Like, uh, I, I think my uh, ability to maybe write clearly or communicate clearly improved due to that uh, work experience. So I think that was something that I hope hopefully uh, helped when I was writing the book and also when I was reading others, uh, what others wrote and writing, well, like giving some comments on that. Um, um, yeah, other than that, I think uh, uh, like when I, when I was writing code also, I had a lot of comments to the code because I was, I used, I was used to writing code with, for students Sometimes students were just starting out. So I, I was used to adding in a lot of comments there, giving a lot of explanations. So that was, I think, also useful when I was writing for the book. I was doing the same thing. So hopefully the notebooks were relatively easier to clean up later because of that. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, think, I, I think I don't have much to add in that direction. I, I, I see uh, the, uh, the fact that my communication skills got better because of being in... Uh, because of teaching helped me a lot while writing the book. So, like one thing you mentioned last time was that this book could sort of help people teach the more applied sense of NLP and machine learning in general. So, what are your thoughts about creating a specific course for this in colleges? Like, is that something that is there or could that also come about? Where, like, this book could serve as a handbook and would that be a good course for students, like apart from a book being there for it? So I think there are courses like that in many universities, right? Like, I mean, they, they, they may not use a book specifically about applied NLP, but there are courses focusing on applied aspects which still use traditional books supplemented with uh, more like hands-on projects kind of things. So considering that, I think this book, although we didn't intend this book to be used by college students or a main audience for more like people working in the industry, as I finished the book, uh, as we finished the book, and as I started talking about this book with my uh, colleague, uh, ex-colleagues who are working as faculty members in different universities, I realized that there's also a possibility. Because clearly there is no right textbook for people who want to teach more applied aspects of NLP in their project, in their courses, other than making students do more and more hands-on projects. That is a good uh, approach, but then even those hands-on projects are typically focused on building a model and testing it on a standard test set, but clearly that's not what happens in the real world. Uh, so uh, so like, like I mentioned before, although we didn't see this book as that kind of textbook, I now, um, after going through the process and then after talking to people, now I see that's also a possibility. There need not be a course around this book, but their existing applied NLP courses probably can benefit from this. 
I would like to add something as a student, which I faced in, in my master's because I was doing my master's in data science. And most of the time, uh, like when I was studying, even nowadays, uh, there are so many data science institutes that are coming in the top universities as well. They're having dedicated data science courses, which are like full time. Uh, that is parallel with the computer science, like normal computer science master's courses, right? And what's the problem in these courses are most of the time uh, in a specific domain like NLP, people still need to take the computer science courses that are being offered. And most of the time, they're not, uh, they're probably 50% helpful for these folks, but they're not as tailored for these students who really are trying to learn this ap application specific side of it. And I think, uh, I think definitely new courses can be designed in these new institutes and new courses where you could use this book as a handbook or, or you may not, but uh, this approach can definitely be taken. This is the problem I faced when I was doing my master's. I had to take a computer science course that benefited me later because I'm doing my PhD in computer science. That's a different story. But I have seen my friends, they were not that much beneficial, uh, uh, benefited by, by, by that course because they found it extremely difficult or they, they found it irrelevant when they finally joined the industry. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and to add to what uh, Bodhi just said, uh, you know, not just the data science institutes, uh, there is a lot of focus on uh, NLP outside of uh, data science and computer science. Uh, humanities, as an example, uh, is, you know, using NLP for a lot of analysis. Business schools, when they need to build uh, certain projects which are NLP related. So we have, say, our introductory chapters or chapter one or the end chapter, they would even be relevant for a business, uh, you know, completely business course, for example. And uh, humanities, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that we cover uh, and uh, wherever in humanity courses, people are applying NLP. So, you know, that can also be used as a handbook because there are other NLP-like courses like computational linguistics. This can be a supplement to the more traditional textbooks which are there in uh, computation. Right. To also add to what Bodhi just said, being a student myself, like having been a student myself, I realized that most of what you were taught in college was preparing us better for a position in academia as compared to a position in the industry. Even though colleges are more sort of highlighting the fact that they are giving 100% placement and things like that. But that is something that probably we can agree is quite a lot missing in the topics that are being taught. It is more theoretical and it does not sort of bridge that gap. So probably yeah, we could see, it would be nice to see a rise in the applied uh, aspects of these subjects and probably that is something that students could benefit from. And I think, uh, so uh, just to add to that, Mukul, uh, at least in certain uh, US universities, a course like machine learning on LP would have like four versions, uh, right? A very basic one focused on undergrad and then a slightly better one focused on masters and advanced undergrads and then uh, something that is focused on a PhD and something that is focused on a PhD, just not any PhD, just a PhD in machine learning. Uh, so there are certain courses, uh, but that is only there at a very small amount of universities. And the courses which are more catered to undergrads, as you said, are more focused on applied uh, work aspects than uh, the more advanced courses. But I totally agree that that this this sort of scheme of four or five courses for a specific subject cannot be scaled to most schools because uh, you know then those schools uh, need to have that kind of bench uh, in terms of their faculty and uh, researchers. Uh, I'd like to add to something Harshit said, which I didn't think of earlier. Uh, so people from other disciplines working on NLP. So I myself taught NLP courses to liberal arts disciplines, students in liberal arts disciplines. 
Uh, I agree with what Harshit said. Uh, most textbooks are written for, uh, or Bodhi said, most textbooks are written for researchers, uh, preparing people for research, but most textbooks are also written for computer science students. However, when we are teaching these courses, these people are not really, like I taught courses where people came from English teaching background and journalism background as well, because they use a lot of textual analysis in their work and they want to get like basic models, like say do some how to do text classification or how to train a topic model, things like that. Uh, they neither have the kind of theoretical maths background that a computer science student has, nor they want it for this kind of work. Uh, but we don't have textbooks for them. Like, I mean, I, uh, I, I used to blog a lot about these kind of issues when I was teaching. So I didn't think of this until Harshit mentioned right now that this book can potentially, some chapters of this book can potentially be useful to uh, that audience as well. But but yeah, I mean, now that it came, I, I think it can be useful for uh, non-engineering audience to get some NLP done in their projects. Right. And uh, just to add to what Swami added, uh, you know, now what's happening in a lot of schools is that uh, machine learning course or some computer science introductory courses are being taken by pretty much the entire uh, school. You know, the school may have liberal arts, may have engineering. So say Harvard has a course called CS50 that essentially all Harvard students take. Earlier it was just an introductory course to computer science. Uh, Stanford's and uh, Berkeley's, UC Berkeley's machine learning courses, you know, everybody in uh, those institutes are trying to uh, take and those courses are so oversubscribed, uh, right? And it's, uh, you know, as Swami rightly said, most of the people who are trying to take these courses don't come from a uh, theoretical computer science background or at times even engineering yeah, like for example, my my advisor takes an introductory uh, course in data science, and uh, uh, in one quarter, uh, which is three months, the number of participants is eight hundred, including <laughs> undergrad and 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 graduate students. So <laughs> you could imagine. Right. So in fact, my next question was going to be about. So we started discussing about how your backgrounds contribute to the book, but the next question was going to be about how what different kinds of people could benefit from the book and a little bit of it has been mentioned in, in your answers about how it could cater to students, researchers, developers, machine learning engineers, business leaders, product managers. So I think we've discussed the engineering side of it, but could we talk more about how it helps people who are not from an engineering background or not from a computer science background? and people like probably the product managers who just know that there are deep learning technologies that my engineers could benefit from and probably they could just impose that but what sort of ideas could they get from the book about how to be more intelligent in dealing with the newer technologies and how how to not just use what's the most trending thing but yeah like how can those people benefit from the book yeah so Mukul, the short answer as to who who could be a target audience is anybody and everybody who is doing AI in industry, especially if if these people are doing for the first time or or their team or their organization is doing AI for the first time. Uh, the long answer could, would be starting from a data scientist who is about building uh, models. A lot of people think that being a data scientist means building some very cool models. Reality is far from it. And the, the book talks of various constraints under which uh, data scientists often have to work, various choices they have to make. Uh, 
there could be product managers. In today's world, AI is a crucial way to add edge to your products. And hence, it is important that product managers understand what AI can and cannot do. Uh, unfortunately, often I have, we have seen that their understanding comes from popular articles where they believe AI can do anything, which is far from the case. So it helped, I mean, this book can help them truly understand what the whole process of building AI models means. And this is extremely crucial because by being a product manager, they are the owner of product. And by virtue of that, they are also owner of collecting the data. And unless that is done, you have a foresight that, hey, tomorrow we might have to build something like that. Hence, today, we must start collecting data of that kind of thing. And that's a very crucial piece. Uh, these could be annotators, people who are there to label data so that it can be used by air times for them to understand what the entire process looks like and how crucial annotation is to to AI project as of today. I, I mean, most of the success that we have seen, at least in industry for sure, is coming out of supervised learning. And annotation becomes extremely crucial. And the quality of annotation, anything wrong up there, that can have huge implications down the line. ML engineers, so that they understand what it means to deploy models and build best practices in order to uh, have AI products running. At the end of the day, you're building products and not models. And they have a huge role to play in terms of data pipelines, monitoring, real-time uh, updations and stuff like that. And I think most importantly, business leaders, because they are the ones who take crucial decisions as to what paths are to be taken, what products are to be conceived. And for them to know what AI can, cannot do, is extremely important. Uh, the problem is not so much in computer vision because in computer vision, both because of models and techniques, a uh, lot of problems are, or at least a lot of run of the mill problems are very easily solvable. But that is still not the case when it comes to NLP. And hence, uh, hence I said that anybody and everybody who has a stake in an AI project, in an organization, barring the ones who have been doing AI for a very long time. Uh, so the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazons that have been doing AI right from the word go, I think barring them, anybody and everybody in industry would be benefited from some aspect or the other. And that's how the book has been written. So chapter one, two, and 11 are primarily for, for leaders, people who plan and own projects while chapter three to 10 are primarily for people who build stuff. And, uh, you know, to add to what Anuj uh, just said, product managers and business leaders, they don't operate in isolation, right? So there is a broader ecosystem that a product manager will report to, you know, their head of product and they need to set the expectations right. They need to set the product roadmap right. So if they don't understand what is possible, and if they get uh, carried away by hype, uh, you know, then, then essentially that affects their roadmap and they, that affects the whole organization's roadmap. Similarly, a business leader uh, might uh, be talking to markets externally, might, might be talking to investors, 
and if they uh, promise something which is not possible or which is not feasible uh, you know that is only going to affect them so and and this is something that uh, we think that that is just not covered in a formal manner anywhere mm, and that is why we added uh, some of those aspects to those chapters that anand was saying especially 1 1 to 11 that are relevant to you know these two uh, broad groups right so anuj mentioned a little bit about how the book has been structured so could could either of you give like a road map to the whole book about yeah about how it was structured about what was the thought process behind creating a structure like i believe you start with the basics a little bit and towards the end you diversify into three specific applications just so that the reader can get a more practical understanding of what has probably been discussed in the earlier chapters so yeah could someone like give a road map to the book how probably the reader should approach the book and which parts could help in which aspects of building a product or understanding about the industry or the various aspects that the book covers um so we the the book we categorize the book into four sections primarily uh and each section has a different focus like the first part is covering foundational aspects like starting right from what is nlp and what aspects of language make nlp difficult more challenging to you know some common applications what what applications need what level of language processing Uh, what are some common methods in nlp like say you know, rule based or machine learning or deep learning what are some common uh, deep learning approaches or why deep learning may not be the solution for everything so we cover we give a broad overview of you know what what exactly is nlp and both in terms of theoretical perspective as well as what it means to apply nlp to build nlp applications in the industry and then we go in in the same in, in that section we go into what is a typical nlp pipeline different stages in that like right from how how do you collect data say for example like uh, which in most cases in uh, research scenarios is typically assumed you already work with the data set but that's not the case when you're actually uh, in the industry so we start talking about those kind of aspects like how do you once you get the data what do you do with it how do you clean it what kind of pre processing do you do how do you build models Uh, so we just give an overview of these aspects and then discuss. Uh, so, say for example, discussing uh, about a general pipeline is different from a specific pipeline. Like let us say, I want to build a chatbot. There are some differences between building a chatbot and say uh, building a, a, a text classification system. So those kind of differences we talk in section two, like where we have core NLP tasks. We discuss about say classification or information extraction chatbots um say topic models search and these kind of things uh in the foundations we also talk about how actually do we represent text on uh, computers right like there are different kinds of features that one can extract from text like starting from very uh, basic common ones like say bag of words and things like that to more recent ones like say using uh, a model bert which is very common now so uh it's it's some kind of progression like we start with these foundations we deal with the core tasks and then we go into how exactly do these come together in different industry verticals like say e-commerce or healthcare finance uh, or how do you um, use social media to uh, get different kinds of information 
Uh, and uh, at, the, at the end, we put all these things together and talk more about how, what does an end-to-end -end NLP, NLP process look like? Even talking about, you know, how do you build AI teams, like more practical advice on what things you should look for and um, say, how do you, uh, even uh, things like what are some good uh, management processes like for building data science products. That there's also something that is uh, not typically discussed even within industry. I think like even within my brief uh, experience in the industry, like uh, the uh, like say traditional software management processes don't work for data science projects. Uh, so that is also something we talk about in the book. In the in the very end, like the last section of the book deals with that. So. Yeah, I think I gave a very long answer to your short question. <laughs> no, no, sorry. I can add a little bit to what Somi just said, uh, especially in the in the in the domain uh, specific section. Uh, and there is a there is a bit of uh, back referencing that we do to uh, to the previous two sections, like the uh, in the introduction, like where we introduce very basic uh, uh, machine learning algorithms or various representation techniques for text. And then the core task, we uh, go deep dive into specific tasks like classification and you know information extraction, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, <clears throat> we reflect back all of these tasks in the in in the in the either in the case studies or explaining various examples in the domain specific cases, so that it's not uh, completely tangential to the people who or to the reader that okay these are some uh, some uh, random applications of NLP techniques in various domains, but. Uh, but but especially uh, they refer back uh, to specific code examples, even notebooks that we provide, uh, and we say that okay, uh, now we have boiled down a domain problem, uh, you know, detailed enough so that you can just treat this as a normal classification uh, problem, and then you forget everything and just apply what you have done in chapter four, and that's yeah. the right way of thinking, uh, even and that's actually useful for beginners as well as you know senior leaders. For the beginners, it's easy to implement those codes, uh, so they they don't get bogged down with the domain-specific details. On the other hand, for the for the product managers and leaders, it's uh, it's is useful because they can come from the domain side of it and they don't get bogged down with the nitty-gritty and implementation details. So, so that's a nice gap uh, we try to bridge uh, based on the first two sections and the third section. Right. So one more thing that I noticed in the book was about how you guys are focused on the project planning aspect of it. And we've discussed the parts about how to approach a problem, how to understand whether it is a feasible problem or not. But a few more things that you've covered are about how to build the right team. And this is probably something that Anuj and Harshit can talk about since they've led teams. And so, yeah, what does it take to build the right team? And like in the context of building a successful project in the industry. So could you talk about that, please? Yeah, uh, Mukul, there are various facets to this. I mean, uh, and it starts by, are you even solving the right problem and are you looking at the right tool? I mean, I've seen scenarios where in, in one of the organizations, they were trying to solve a customer support problem and they were planning to use deep learning models. Finally, uh, turned out that the amount of cost in terms of manpower and hardware resources were much, much greater than the amount of savings that, that, that was to come by automating some aspects of customer support. Or uh, I've seen cases where uh, 
somebody who was trying to apply a NER system and he had two 200 data points. He was trying to run a state of the art, art deep, deep learning model. So, so there are various parts to it. A team that understands one, is it the right problem? Two, is it the right time to solve this problem? Three, uh, is it the right approach at this point in time? And when I say that, how much data is there? So most organizations, if you talk, they'll say, oh, we have tons of data, gigabytes of data. But the truth is, when you look at the quantity and quality of it, uh, it is completely different picture. Half of these values will be NAND. And most, most machine learning models cannot even deal with that. And this is a very simple example of it. One of the biggest reasons XGBoost is used is because it can handle NAND. And that's the practicality of things, right? Uh, then uh, from a business leader point of view, what is the ROI? You are, you're gonna build something, uh, you're gonna deploy, what is the return on investment? How soon can that return start? So in most cases, you end up spending doubly or triply the cost initially because you have a makeshift solution and a ML solution being being developed in parallel. The ROI comes over a period of time. Uh, also understanding that a good experience is not just about model. So, I mean, there's an analogy that I and Harshit have often talked of that a model is, is like somebody who is, who, is, who is on a trapeze performing great uh, stunts. But once in a while, the model will fail or it can be more often. And then what are your safety nets? And how you design your UI UX around your model itself can have huge implications how people perceive when your model makes a mistake. Because machine learning if or machine learning models are not human made brains, they will make tons of mistakes. And managing that expectation that various level both within the organization and your customers become extremely crucial. Uh, from a team perspective, hiring the best PhDs, does it guarantee you success? Uh, might not be the case, because in academia, you have data sets which are standard data sets, well cleaned, well labeled. It's all about building a model that can take the state of the art by, or push the state of the art by half a percent or one percent or whatever is that number. When you come in industry, 80% of your time will be around battle around data. And that's a completely different perspective. Uh, so I would say these are various facets and then from a process point of view, right? Uh, what are the various stages? As Samya mentioned earlier also, lot of software, lot of people in industry think because at the end of the day, machine learning model is a code, anything and everything in software engineering is directly applicable. Uh, truth is that is not the case. Uh, so these are various facets that a team has to have within themselves in order to successfully execute. Uh, the organizations that have been doing for a long number of years thoroughly understand these things inside out. A uh, lot of organizations which are new uh, learn, learn it often the hard way. So yeah, I think that's the long answer.
to your question, but I hope I've covered most of the points. Harshit and Bodhi can add more to whatever I might have missed. So uh, I think for teams, one experience that I have had is that, uh, you know, obviously it's great to have a great mix of uh, people. Uh, and, you know, it's funny that we can even say that, uh, you know, at times you need PhDs, you need engineers, you need people who can hack together stuff quickly. And in some sense, that's like uh, our, uh, the team of our book, you know. So, so maybe the team of our book is similar to what you need to uh, have inside your org. Uh, one caveat that I'll add is that often at uh, reasonably early stages, it may not always be a great idea to just, uh, uh, and when the team is small, to have someone from uh, these very large organizations and uh, uh, who has just built models. Because at these very large organizations, they are also, uh, you know, they are also dealing with the abundance of data, either labeled data or data that they, uh, you know, that is implicitly being generated by users. And that may not be true for your organization. And uh, sometimes uh, certain business leaders think that, hey, if I can get someone from this organization and he has built models at this scale, they might just work without any support, uh, you know, without any support system, which may not always be. Yeah, and I think I'll add one more point, point Mukul, as an afterthought here, is that in large organizations, there is no one AI team. There are multiple AI teams that work at multiple levels. So. You will have teams that will work at the cutting edge, pushing the boundary. But you'll also have AI teams within the product who will use run-of-the-mill solutions and run-of-the-mill algorithm to uh, incorporate AI into products. This is something that is often missed by most other organizations, and they often end up going for the cutting edge rather than actually realizing what they really need. So like Bodhi has had chance to work in teams which are work work at the edge of it but these are not the teams that will build ai into products and those are completely different challenges completely different constraints yeah i just want to uh, emphasize the uh, the the point anuj made uh, earlier in his in his answer that most of the time all of the big companies says that we have tons of data we have terabytes of data but uh, and maybe it is true maybe if you just go into their data centers they do have terabytes of data but i think the real question is that when you are solving a problem do you have the data for that problem do you have terabytes of data for that specific problem and most of the cases the distribution of this data is really long tail you have lots of data for a very simple problem that can be very easily solved and that's probably already solved uh, by your team and then you really struggle to this long tail of problems where you really struggle with data or you really don't have any data. So that's always a misconception uh, uh, that, that, that most of the time people, uh, people have in the industry. Whenever they, they, they promote themselves, they say that we have lots of data. Uh, so by doing that, they kind of believe in that, but that's probably not true when you actually introspect and see this long tail of problems. So. I think uh, I think uh, it's educational in two ways. Uh, uh, one is that to realize that you have this long tail of uh, problems that, that for which you don't have the data. So realization that you don't have the data is important. But also, what is important to understand how many problems you can actually solve. So so if you just know that there are only two or three problems in a domain you could solve, then you are really living in a pocket. But when you come out of it and actually finally realize that okay, even in this domain you could solve so and so like 30 NLP problems then you can actually expand your teams, expand your data collection strategies, et cetera. 
and the, then the distribution become you know more uniform and richer and then you could attack this problem in a more intelligent fashion yeah so as a matter of fact mokul in our book we actually use the analogy so i'm um, i mean i mean we all know the famous line data is the new oil which is great and correct but here we are talking of the crude oil if you view your model as a fighter jet that can deliver stuff for you a fighter jet cannot fly on a crude oil and what you need are refineries that can convert that crude oil into aviation fuel that can be used by fighter jet and most big organizations know this extremely well they have large data engineering teams often you will find that their data engineering teams are 4x 5x of size of ai teams that build this extensive infrastructure that can filter out crude oil into various components on which various subsystems and models can run and that's something that is a crucial piece that is missing in most organizations and uh, so anuj talked about uh, these two different teams so you know the teams which are doing very cutting edge work and teams which are uh, you know doing very ad hoc work in the same organization so i think what's also important is that as organizations get larger it's important that these two teams directly talk to each other and that's what happens at the largest organization that the these cutting edge teams uh, you know give these apis or give these models which other people or give these pipelines that other people who are building these ad hoc uh, things could use okay frameworks that other people can use and that is something that also we touch upon and i think that's important uh, when your ai team or your uh, organization grows uh, to have more more platform dependent teams uh, as well as teams who are building uh, a certain platform that other teams can use yeah thank you for the amazing analogies uh, anuj and uh, so yeah so now that we've talked about how the book has been written about the key topics that's covering i am i wanted to know how the response has been to the book i see that it is topping the charts on amazon and also it has received quite a lot of diverse reviews from different kinds of people and i think the theme for this episode could be how could be diversity among the authors among the topics that are being covered in the book among among the type of people who could benefit from the book and that is also there with the types of reviews that you've received from leaders senior research scientists and practitioners as well so could you talk about how the response has been and like what feedback you've received about the book so i think as you mentioned that the book uh, got uh, you know has been doing pretty well on amazon uh, we also got uh, uh, very positive feedback uh, from our readers you know there was a reader who ended up saying that uh, you know i was uh, there was this memorial day weekend or july fourth weekend and they had nothing to do and they ended up uh, using that entire weekend long weekend to read the book so there has been a lot of positive feedback from uh, from our uh, readers as well i think i'll let others speak about specifically different uh, folks who gave us endorsements but i'll just say that the diversity is that some people are coming from pure research background some people are coming from research uh, uh, research leadership backgrounds some people are coming from engineering and executive le- uh, leadership backgrounds and then we also have people who are in the trenches or who are practitioners who are building models uh, who are used by other people so we have all these people uh, that have also endorsed us and uh, looks like are uh, you know reading our book yeah i can talk about some sweet memories i have uh, for example 
in in one of the team I'm working uh, in one of our team meeting, one of the senior researcher actually uh, you know uh, took out the, the hard copy of our book from his bookshelf and showed to everyone. So that was that was a pleasant surprise to me. But uh, it also adds to the to the confidence that we have that. Uh, even these senior researcher folks who are doing very hardcore research uh, and cutting edge research, they also feel the need of the book. Uh, and uh, he, I mean, uh, as you mentioned, that this would be even useful for anyone who who are doing NLP in in any any capacity in the industry. So that was really uh, uh, ensuring that uh, we hit uh, we tried to hit the right chord. Uh, uh, and this was uh, this was a timely book. Uh, yeah, in general, uh, even uh, I know uh, you know. There are many undergraduate students in various schools. Uh, I always hear from my friends who are in different U.S. universities. They say that they have heard undergraduate students in in public places, buses. They are talking about the books, uh, and uh, that's also very very encouraging uh, to all of us. Apart from all the formal praises and reviews that we got in the Amazon. So yeah, that's 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 a, that's a that unaccounted kind of reviews and praise we what we got so far. But others can talk about the. What we already have right now in the online. Uh, I'd also like to mention that we have been getting a few errata submissions on the O'Reilly webpage. So they are not like major uh, errors or anything. They are relatively smaller things to address, but still, I find it very like uh, I find it happy that like I, somebody has bothered to go so much into detail not just about reading the book, but then again, coming back and saying, you know, there are these say spelling mistakes or something can be rephrased or something like that. I mean, like I said, they're not like major uh, uh, technical errors or something, some major feedback or something, but it just shows the amount of attention to detail readers are giving to the book, right? That's, that's always good. Like if the book is bad, nobody bothers to do all these things. Right. So, so there was a French reader, uh, when we are demonstrating a French yeah. translation example, they pointed out that, hey, there was a, little small word that was missing a syllable almost that was missing in a, a french translation and they took the trouble to write uh, you know to uh, write a writer for it i was actually thinking about how since you've covered so many aspects and like bodhi mentioned like your students and leaders and all those people from different walks of life from different fields not just engineering not just people in business or not just leaders so it's great to see how it is sort of starting a conversation between multiple disciplines and which is, I mean, I feel we need more books like these, which can involve a lot more people and sort of bridge the gap between different disciplines that have formed over time because for products to improve and for the field to go in probably a more, in a better direction, that is more inclusive of the different ideas that different people can bring, uh, I think we need more books like these, yeah. So thank you for spending the time on creating this, yeah. Right, so, someone do you want to add something? I just wanted to say thanks. <laughs> thanks for the kind words. Okay. Right. So, yeah, so, so my next question was about the process of writing the book and all of you have collaborated into writing a book, but what does it take to take a book from one draft to the final one that goes into production and uh, so probably you could talk about the role of the publisher and about how those drafts are converted into the into finally what goes out so i don't think many people know about that process it's only something that you learn when you write a book 
so could you sort of give a picture about that process so that like people like me or right. anyone so, who probably would want so, to write a book in the future can yes, sort yes. of so you know, we, we'll walk you through that entire process uh, so the first part is obviously uh, talking to some people and getting your proposal accepted and uh, a big part of that is how your book uh, stands out uh, uh, from all other books and you know is there still a market for it right you can still write a book which stands out but there's no market for it because for a very very niche thing so you know so and how do you generally get your proposal accepted is either you reach out to people in your network or somebody will reach out to you and so forth so once that is accepted you need to essentially give a uh, uh, agree with them on a timeline on how at what stage will you complete each chapter what our publisher did was that after completion of half the chapters you know all the chapters went to a technical review and that technical review helped us in shaping a lot of parts of the book right and then they even uh, do a early release or you know what you can say as a beta version of the book that again gives you uh, different feedback and then you keep submitting the chapters you they go for another technical review just to make sure everything is all right and then uh, you know this all the process that you start uh, that you talked about uh, get started so things like typesetting things like uh, making sure the pictures are correct things like making sure the references are correct or uh, you know there are no quotes that are used in a non copyright manner so all of these are taken care of uh, by the publisher uh, what we uh, were very fortunate uh, about is having oriley as our publisher and uh, oriley is uh, oriley media is like probably the oldest uh, tech publisher probably the most well known tech publisher and a lot of books that we looked up to while writing the book as well as while uh, reading about all these different technologies were published by oriley so 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 they had they were experts in whatever they did and you know they uh, they steer us to the right things that we would have wished uh, had uh, they not been around so that is what i would say has been very fortunate uh, for the book this is probably something that you would have considered so i wanted to know that since all of us know that machine learning and deep learning is quite a fast paced field um there are new papers being published every day new tools being put out there and it's difficult for people to keep track of things and therefore books that try to talk about certain aspects of the field can become obsolete in some sense in the future wherein probably your book talks about a certain way of doing things and in 6 months you know there's one model that sort of takes care of it all and moving forward all of those things are only taken care by that model so uh, have you thought about the fact that certain parts of the book could get obsolete in the coming years were you cognizant of that have you sort of tried to make sure that there are things that go beyond that stand the test of time and yeah like what are some of the things that would be perennially important through the book so i think we thought about this we thought about uh, you know parts of our book becoming obsolete uh, even when we are writing it and that is why our focus has not been to just focus uh, just focus on a specific algorithm and give in entire details of that because as you said that specific algorithm or that specific model would become absolute mm, would become absolute in a uh, in a few months or in a year but uh, we give a, a broader framework which we think could still be applicable five years down the line when they are much more advanced models so that is one thing that uh, you know we thought uh, that was very important uh, in our mind while we are writing this book i think others can add Uh, yeah i'd like to add that we also at many points in the book 
say the same thing. Like, I mean, the state of the art changes uh, very frequently in this field. So we are not just focusing on that. We are doing a whole range of things. Right? Like, uh, for example, in text classification, like, or in text in chapter three or chapter four, I clearly remember writing about that particular part. Like, why we don't have examples of all the state of the art models. Like, say, we have one example of that, but. Uh, we don't have examples of all the recent models because they keep changing. And even from the time we started writing that chapter to the time the final version of the chapter came, a lot of new things happened. Uh, so uh, we, we emphasize that fact throughout the book as well. I mean, there are, of course, as Harshit mentioned, there are, of course, things that are uh, relevant, I think, for some time to come. But we also meant, uh, emphasize that what we talk about as state of the art now will not remain state of the art after some time. Yeah, I think Mukul, if you, uh, I mean, if we say that the entire chapter is like a, uh, like a building, then, and SOTA is like the upper floor. So, so some of the upper floors might change. And as Samia rightly mentioned, but I think the foundations will remain for next two, three, or maybe even five years. Uh, Shelf life of a book is a question that we have considered right from the word go. And I believe it will live up to that thought for, for, for some time to come for sure. And we are also planning to, you know, maybe in a few months once we are done with all these events, have a small blog where we'll, uh, you know, link the state of the art with how that connects with a certain chapter or a certain section of the book. So that uh, is helpful for the readers who already have purchased the book. That uh, you know, this is this is how this what I know is relevant with uh, what the state of art is. What we also think is that would be helpful uh, for us to write a very exhaustive uh, second edition uh, uh, that'll be useful and without having to do all the research again because that keeps track of all the major stuff. Have you started working on the second edition already? No, but we no. I, we don't know if there will be a second edition. We are planning that, uh, yeah, uh, you know, if there was something like that, and if we all of us had the bandwidth, you know, how would we go about doing that? That is the point of the blog. Right. So talking about new state of the arts coming and things moving quickly, uh, things getting obsolete, new models taking over earlier implementations, we have to address the elephant in the room which is GPT-3 and uh, I mean there's a lot of hype as we all know. Uh, I'm curious as to how you think about this. This has come after your book has launched I think and does this affect anything that you talk about in the book or how do you guys look at it? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, uh, I would actually take that question because myself being a PhD uh, in language generation uh, this is definitely a very important moment to ponder about that is it is it the defining moment that we all have been looking for and is it uh, is it the case that we have we have solved one of the biggest challenges that that our country uh, so many researchers are tackling uh, but uh, but i think uh, i think uh, i would be very careful as as there are many uh, follow up blogs that are coming up uh, on gpt3 uh, it's true uh, that these uh, these big models, uh, which has of the order of you know 100 billion parameters, has extreme capacity, and uh, and one of the boon of uh, uh, being a uh, uh, very good uh, at hallucinating 
different things uh, walls around you because uh, i think there uh, i think people do believe uh, or at least the way we work we think about it let's say if i give you a cue about a story title you could very easily come up with a story and the way you do it is it by hallucination so hallucination uh, kind of is a, is a is a layman term that links to a very technical term that's called generalization in machine learning uh, that whenever you see certain data you try to find out common patterns that you could generalize on data that you haven't seen uh, and and that's that's that, that's a holy grail right that's uh, we all have been trying to solve that when you have certain data you train a model but just let the model work on unknown data sets that you have uh, and that's what gpt3 is apparently doing uh, it's 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 a it's an extremely powerful tool as a zero shot or a few shot model where you have a huge model you have a specific use case you just give certain data points for your use case and it will just work one uh, like do wonder in your in your in, in in that specific domain and that's definitely very very useful uh, but i i would i would refrain it calling a defi defining moment or a or a you know path breaking moment just because that uh, maybe on the surface these models are doing great job these models are catering to the problem again i think uh, to the to the cherry picked examples or even not even cherry picked examples but the simpler examples in that particular task that you're trying to solve for example in a dialogue uh, let's say if you want to use gpt3 maybe maybe you can ask questions like hi how are you and probably it would it would give you great answers or even you can try to ask trick questions like okay uh, what's the meaning of life etc and it might still give you a good answer which probably none of the none of the other models can even do that it probably doesn't even understand but uh, that's not the end of it that that's very good for a demo that's good that's very good for an, giving an example and how powerful is your model is but whenever you think about user applicability whenever you are you are thinking about trying to put that model in an interactive systems where end users will be using then it's it's very important what you are generating uh, is, is actually useful is actually actually consistent is actually fact checked and also have you know and uh, does not cross the the boundary of ethics and uh, does not spit out you know uh, you know foul languages right so all of that problems really comes when you try to deploy these huge models into the into the production try to use it in a in a user facing use cases so i think uh, people are still uh, figuring it out and experimenting with this gpt3 and there have been lots of examples negative examples where it still generated you know uh, you know you know racist comments you know uh, biased languages uh, uh, that is always a problem in all of the generation models that is one but also cases where people try to use it for a very specific uh, purposes like you know you know that deals with extremely specific entities for a certain domain uh, where the hallucination is still not working it's still doing a great job but it's not doing the right job or it's it's still not giving you the the factual uh, you know kind of sentences that it should generate or a human should write so so there is always a gap between what you could do in a uh, uh, in a more fancy level and come up with very fluent uh, uh, you know languages from this model but then there is a whole range of spectrum of control generation uh, fact based generation where you have to be factually correct etc etc you know uh, you have to be commonsensical you have to be ethical etc and i think all of those problems are still open so it's definitely a good step towards it but we definitely have a lot to work on i think mukul the best way would be that if you i mean if you look at ml way to answer it look at the past if you want to predict the future so i think there was similar euphoria around a lstm or a gru or a attention network or a bert and that is uh, important also because that's when the adoption really starts 
and it's only when the adoption starts people go to threadbare details to bring out various issues so now if you see currently you see hundreds of paper talking of what are the drawbacks of bert right and i'm sure you will see similar things there i mean no to questions about all these models are bringing lot of new perspective and wave to attack problems but is this the silver bullet i am not very sure i i would say a, a cautious optimism is better that's that's how i would go about it we can see the hype that's there around gpt3 but uh even the ceo of openai sam altman he's also tweeted to say that what what gpt3 can do is only a very early glimpse of how ai can change the world and probably it's too soon to expect a lot from this model and yeah probably a cautious approach would be a better one to understanding how effective it can be in real life right so before we close i wanted the last section of the episode to resonate with the last subsection of the book which is about peeking over the horizon so in your understanding what does this hype about gpt3 talk about our overall understanding of how these fields are moving and about how ai and machine learning are going to pan out in the next few years or in the next few decades so could you give us a glimpse of how these fields are going to evolve over the years and how sort of you've tried to incorporate that message into the book so that readers could sort of get an understanding about how these fields are moving and how probably they could make sense of that and probably align themselves more towards how the fields are changing so could you share your thoughts about that no oh. so i think we just talked about gpt3 and bodhi was mentioning that how uh, it is probably a little superficial it really doesn't understand uh, everything and that is what uh, you know some demos have also been showing so what uh, some people have been thinking about is how do you measure intelligence because right now most of the matrix that we are using are quite narrow for a very specific task which might not generalize which might not pass during test or which might not really be useful in our more broader intelligence so there has been uh, some work by the inventor of uh, keras on how do you define intelligence uh, uh, you know and then there has been other other uh, works from cognitive scientists uh, as well on you know what really intelligence is and how machines how you can build better machines so that is one way of looking at it that maybe in the future maybe in 5 years there'll be better measures of defining this intelligence and hence better models or models which are more tuned to that measure of intelligence as opposed to rmse or mep or whatever you know models that we are working on that we focus uh, so that is one way of looking at it uh, which is you know uh, people will define different measures of intelligence the other way is that as you uh, you know as we see that ai is being used more and more in all businesses and products and then people are thinking about the new business of ai because essentially it's now a business also then just academic discipline that it used to be a decade or two decades back so and in this there are different aspects uh, that uh, uh, consulting companies like mckinsey and bcg have come that where does uh, very specific aspects of ai help for your business and where they don't uh, we specifically mentioned it in the book because for business leaders who are in a specific domain reading that specific bcg or mckinsey report uh, would be really helpful in understanding that these are aspects that i can focus on in my product or in my business and these aspects still take longer time right so that for that academic researchers are not the most suited for uh, uh, 
on this uh, on uh, you know talking to directly to academic researchers may not get you the right answer if you're a business leader who's thinking of making a new business uh, the other aspect of that would be uh, you know how investors are thinking about it and you know i would not go into too much details of that because this is a you know finally a, a deep learning uh, podcast but i would recommend everybody reads the uh, uh, Business of AI uh, blog post by Andreessen Horowitz, which is a Silicon Valley investor, and uh, maybe we can provide a link to that uh, as well. And uh, you know, these are essentially two way, two different, two very different ways about thinking about uh, uh, where AI and machine learning and LP would be in the next five years. All right, then. Uh, thank you so much, Odi, Soumya, Harshit, and Anuj, for sharing your insights about the field. Um, many, many congratulations and all the best for. your upcoming book and it it's already doing quite well and i hope it stands the test of time and and that i'd be reading it 10 years from now or 20 years from now and i'll probably cut this part out because i would like to read it before that but probably <laughs> people even people in the next generation could um benefit from your hard work from your from the three years that you spent in sort of amalgamating all of this all of your insights into this one book so thank you so much thank you so much everyone thank you so much thanks for uh, spending uh, you know waking up early or spending so late for some and uh, and yeah th- thank you everyone it's a very thank well, you so much mukul well organized yeah. <laughs> thank you very much mukul i mean i i now see the amount of work that goes into each podcast <laughs> Right. So, yeah. someone should in- interview the podcasters, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As we didn't see for the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.